Hi, Door of Hope. I am Mackenzie Wilder, and I am reading the scripture for this week. Um, I actually have two passages. So the first is from Matthew 28, and the second is from Acts 1. So in Matthew 28, the verses are 16 through 20. Now the eleven disciples went to Galilee, to the mountain to which Jesus had directed them. And when they saw him, they worshipped him, but some doubted. And Jesus came and said to them, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. And the second passage is Acts 1, 6 through 8. So when they had come together, they asked him, Lord, will you at this time restore the kingdom to Israel? He said to them, it is not for you to know times or seasons that the father has fixed by his own authority, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and in Samaria and to the end of the earth. Um, Lord, God, uh, this is huge. This is about being your witnesses and about making disciples. And honestly, we just come to you and confess that we all fail at this. And um, yeah, Lord, we also just thank you that we fail at this and you've created us to be a people who need to rely on you. Like you say in your word, um, it's not for us to know. It's not It's not all on us um, to make this thing happen, God. You, by your spirit, give us the power um, and the knowledge at the right time. So, God, I just pray that we would be faithful to you. I think um, just by humbling ourselves, by confessing that we can't do it without you um, and just inviting you into our lives moment by moment and day by day to ask you how you would reach the world. Um, Yeah, Lord, so I... Just thank you that we are um, totally lost without you. And thank you that you've promised us that you are with us forever. Um, thank you, Lord. We love you. Amen. Hey, everyone. It's Cameron. It's good to be with you. Hope you're having a good Sunday so far. Um, so oh, there's this <laughs> new plant shop slash nursery that opened up uh, in our neighborhood. And my, my family had driven by it. My wife and I had driven by it a couple of times and we were like, oh, that looks cool, that looks interesting. So we went, went by a couple weeks ago. It was really nice, it's wonderful. I'm sure we'll get some plants there um, at some point. But um, I noticed like in, in the midst of sort of plants and plant stuff and pots and all those kinds of things, uh, kind of a, a little centerpiece table that had all these sort of ritual spell candles. Um, and I think I've observed those for a while in various kind of cool, trendy Portland shops or whatever. Um, but, it, but it had caught my eye this time specifically because um, several weeks ago when we were doing our Advent services, I had gotten Advent candles for the families that recorded the videos for us. And I was, I was going to get um, little candle holders. And I thought it'd be really nice just to get some like simple, you know, little ceramic yeah, uh, candle holders. That would be great. But literally the only ones I could find on various websites and even something as wide-ranging as Amazon, uh, were ones specifically, explicitly marketed uh, for use in pagan rituals, <laughs> like spell candles. And I thought, well, I, 
I guess I maybe would use these. I don't know. I don't want to give a demon to one of the families that are going to be using these. I ended up opting not to use them. But it was interesting. I was like, wow, that, that's interesting that the only kinds of candles you can get, like candle holders you can get like this, um, are these sort of like witchcraft candles uh, or candle holders. Um, and now I've just, I'm seeing them everywhere. Um, and it turns out there's been a notable rise um, in pagan spirituality in American culture uh, and pop culture, really, um, that, that's ebbed and flowed. But, uh, but especially in the U.S., it's been really popular since the 60s. And that's kind of to be expected. Like, I, I remember um, reading several years ago some really good thinkers like Oz Guinness and uh, Francis Schaeffer who, who made the connection, you know, as, as sort of rationalism and, and secular philosophy that, that over time sought to sort of dislodge itself from belief in God. As it, you know, continued to, to build upon itself and new thinkers would come along and say, no, you missed this, it's really this. And the next person comes along, no, you missed this, it's really this. They kind of hit a dead, dead end, in, in my opinion, as some of these ideas became, you know, more mainstream in the 60s, like uh, existentialism and deconstructionism, where they ascent, they eventually got to the point where they realized we kind of have to eject from any notion of absolute truth. Um, any sort of firm foundation beyond power plays or um, community interpretation or, or just internal individualistic sort of expression. And uh, when people hit those dead-end roads philosophically, they, they, they end up needing something to anchor themselves in the transcendent, in the spiritual. But they don't often jump back to Christianity. I mean, of course, many do. But many people often end up jumping into like sort of pagan spirituality as a way to sort of create meaning. And, and, uh, and that's what we're seeing uh, today a lot of times. And last week, I started reading this really fascinating book uh, by the journalist slash novelist Tara Isabella Burton uh, called Strange Rights. It has this really rad cover. I'll show it to you. Strange Rights. Um, but... Um, I'm fascinated by it. I'm only a, a couple chapters in, but I, forgive me if it starts working its way into sermon illustrations for the weeks to come. But the book is, is really an exploration of, of the incredibly fast rise of what she calls remixed religion. That's her term. In her words, this remixed religion is, quote, a religion of emotive intuition, of aestheticized and commodified experience, of self-creation and self-improvement, and yes, selfies. A religion for a new generation of Americans raised to think of themselves both as capitalist consumers and as content creators. A religion decoupled from institutions, from creeds, from metaphysical truth claims about God or the universe or the way things are, but that still seeks in various and varying ways to provide us with the pillars of what religion always has, meaning, purpose, community, ritual, end quote. And this trends most heavily, she goes on to say, amongst millennials, my generation, and amongst Gen Z, the, the, the younger generation. Um, the, the hallmark of this remixed religion um, is the idea that you really are like the creator of your own bespoke, personalized religion, quote, Mixing and matching spiritual and aesthetic and experiential and philosophical traditions, she says. And it's, 
it's profound individualism mixed with consumerism, mixed with like techno and sexual utopianism, mixed with wellness culture, mixed with political activism, mixed with occultism in many cases. Expressed in forms, I want to be very clear about this, all along the socio-political spectrum. Um, it's not only the far left or the far right, the, it's both of them, and people all along the middle uh, that are not sort of, um, I don't know, politically uh, extreme. Um, Burton estimates that over half the U.S. population currently would fall into this broad category of remixed religion to one degree or another. Um, in my own estimation, what this is, is, is a way of, of becoming your own prophet. More than that, becoming your own cult leader. <laughs> and more than that, becoming your own God, I think is, is fundamentally what this is. And what does it look like? I love this quote from Burton. She says, well, if you've ever been to a yoga studio or a CrossFit class, ever practiced self-care with a 10-step Korean beauty routine or a Gwyneth Paltrow sanctioned juice cleanse, ever written or read internet fan fiction, ever compared your spiritual outlook to a Dungeons and Dragons classification or your personal temperament to that of a Hogwarts house, ever channeled your sense of cosmic purpose into social justice activism, ever tried to biohack yourself or used a meditation app like Headspace, ever negotiated, quote, personal relationship rules, be they kink or ethical non-monogamy with a partner, ever cleansed your house with sage or ever been wary of a person's toxic energy, you've participated in some of these trends. There are more. Just you wait. <laughs> we'll get to that. That's from her intro chapter. Um, and I want to say, it's not to say that there's anything wrong with, let's say, uh, CrossFit, for example, but when these things take on this sort of religious meaning-making significance, and certainly some of them are just bad on the face of it, um, that's what she's talking about. Um, interestingly, I would say, uh, and it's interesting and I'd say it's obvious, um, but even before the pandemic, like the same demographics of people that are m most giving themselves over to this kind of remixed religion are the same ones that have significantly higher rates of deep loneliness and deep depression, according to polls. So, so whatever's going on with this, it, it doesn't seem to be working. And people are spiritual creatures. So um, uh, th there's a sense in which, of course, people are yearning and, and grasping in new ways for the spiritual. But, but I, and, and hopefully you, <laughs> um, believe that the, that the proper answer to spiritual longings is not curating a religion the same way we would curate an Instagram feed. Um, it, it, it's in longing for and finding a genuine transcendent truth that's beyond you that doesn't that we're not the arbiters of it it exists and we find it christianity claims that god has revealed himself in history in the person of jesus christ uh, in other ways as well but most chiefly in the person of christ and, and and if that is true i believe it i hope you believe it if it is true that God's revealed himself in history in Christ. It's the best news the world could possibly hear, but it is news. 
It's not something we get to fabricate or define for ourselves. We come in contact with it and we submit ourselves to the revelation of God. Um, And this leads us to today's spiritual discipline. We've been in our series, The the Disciplines of Grace. Today we're going to talk about the discipline of witness, or you could say the discipline of evangelism. And this discipline is profoundly important, both because of the despair and the spiritual yearning of our neighbors that we hopefully deeply love, and because of the temptation each of us are going to feel at various times to substitute the religious truth, the spiritual truths um, of our deceitful hearts, (laughs) the ones of our intuitions. We're going to be tempted to substitute those in for the true and the beautiful and the good revealed ones from the God of the universe, because it's the culture we swim in. This discipline is important for for those who don't know Christ and and, and submit to him and for us who who do. Uh, So let's jump in. Discipline of witness. We're going to start with just just the nature of the New Testament call to witness. And I want to start by answering four questions. Try to do them quickly. What are we witnessing to? What gives us confidence to witness? How should we think of ourselves as witnesses? And then into what, and then uh, get, uh, so, so those are four questions. And then we'll get into what a discipline of witness might look like. So first, why should we witness? Why is it our responsibility? Well, Mackenzie already read for us from Matthew 28 that Jesus came to the disciples. He said, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Therefore, go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I've commanded you. And behold, I'm with you always to the end of the age. And that word baptizing implies the evangelism, the the sending out of the good news to see new people respond to it in faith and be baptized into the family of God, into the church. Um, And many rightly point out that Jesus' audience here is the the 12 disciples minus Judas, it's the 11, and that they've had a special, they had a special responsibility um, as God's chosen messengers to witness to all the nations. And that is true. But it's clearly, it must be true that they aren't the only ones called to witness because of the sheer scope of the command. The command is to take the good news to the ends of the earth, to every nation. Um, And there's no way the gospel could go that on the mouths and lips of these 11 and eventually 12. Um, They had a special responsibility, yes, but I believe implicit in this is a call for all Christians in all places to take part in this mission. And in our day, of course, like none of the original disciples are alive. Um, But even today, I think the pattern is similar. There are some who are going to be specifically, specially gifted as evangelists. That's not me, frankly. Um, Ephesians 11 says, uh, and, and he gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the pastors, and the teachers for building up the body of Christ. Those are spiritual gifts, I believe, um, that, that where people are so gifted and that becomes their primary role and they're just, it's so natural and it's just a blessing to, to the church and its function. Um, but even though some people are especially gifted and appointed to do evangelism as their primary avenue of service, that does not get you and me off the hook. Um, uh, that, that doesn't mean we're not called to witness. 
um, as well. In fact, all believers should be, in the words of Peter, quote, always being prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you for a reason for the hope that's in you. So that's the responsibility. It's yours and it's mine. Some of you are going to be gifted in evangelism, and this is going to be so natural and exciting. You're going to have so much success, and we need you. But for the rest of us, we need to be reminded it's our responsibility as well. Secondarily, what are we witnesses to? What is the content of our witness? Well, hopefully you would know intuitively it's the gospel. And the Greek word for gospel is this word euangelion, which is best translated simply good news. When you hear gospel, think good news news. And this was a common word in the Roman Empire. It it, it announced, it was a word used when they announced either the installation of a new emperor or some great recent accomplishment of a new emperor. And the idea was that when one of these massive things happened, the good news would go out and it would say what had happened, what the circumstance is, and what the benefit was going to be in the future for the empire. And so it's interesting that Jesus and the early Christians specifically adopted this term to announce the arrival of King Jesus and his kingdom. And the implication is that it's over and against the kingdom that they were under, the Roman Empire. Um, this was, this was a, a, uh, a counter news to the news that they might announce. This was deeper and better and more significant kind of news. And to say that the gospel is news implies, uh, it's really important, it implies that something has happened outside of you. There's something that has happened um, because of which everything is different. Um, It's like like some massive thing happens uh, in the world and you open up the front page of your newspaper and it's all, all caps at the top. This thing has happened and you simply get to go, oh my gosh, this thing has happened. How does this impact me? How is this going to change my life? And then you get to respond to it. Uh, Or some people don't respond to it or whatever. They ignore it or or whatever. But it's news. And I want to note first that it's news specifically, not advice. The gospel is good news, not advice. It's not a program for how to better yourself. It is news that has happened. It's an announcement that we get to hear. And if it's news, second thing I would say is that it's words not merely actions. When I was, uh, I don't know why I'm talking about Facebook so much lately. I promise I'm not like a Facebook fiend. Uh, <laughs> but uh, on my early Facebook account in college, I had that quote that's you've probably heard. It's mistakenly attributed to St. Francis of Assisi. Preach the gospel at all times. Use words if necessary. And I, don't, I just don't think I had precision at that time around what the gospel is or whatever. Um, there's a sense in which that quote Uh, is good if all you mean by that is that your life, your character, your actions should reflect a gospel-shaped value system. Of course, Uh, that's what most of 1 John was about, which we just went through as a community. Um, The good news should change us and our actions should be in accord with it. That's good. But if you mean you can actually communicate the news to someone without ever speaking the words of the good news, that's problematic. (laughs) It's not true. If the gospel is news, it must be shared as news verbally, um, either in written form or from the tongue. The gospel is words, not merely actions, although please don't hear me say that actions aren't important. So if that's the case, if the gospel is news, if it has content to it, how does the Bible define it? Um, Well, if you were to Google what is the gospel, 
you would find countless books and articles and tweets and on and on and on uh, offering different definitions. And there's a sense in which that's really bad because there are going to be, in my estimation, a lot of wrong conceptualizations of the gospel. Um, Well-intentioned books written that just, I think, get it wrong from what Jesus and the apostles were after. Um, There's also a sense in which it's to be expected because uh, even while the biblical authors clearly share sort of common understanding of the core of the gospel, the, the way they actually phrase it varies. Um, well, this shows us that there's not only there's not one way to, to phrase the gospel. There's not one exact combination of words that must always be uttered the same way every time. And the apostles themselves would preach the gospel like with different emphases depending on their their audience and their context and the available time there are short kind of one or two sentence summaries of the gospel um, in the in the new testament and then there's long sermons that uh, that explain the gospel i think it's great to read whole books about the gospel that get into the weeds and all the things and it's great to be able to articulate it simply in a sentence or two um, so there's flexibility in how you specifically phrase the gospel. But nonetheless, I want to look at two passages real quick in the New Testament that give us massively important insights into what the gospel is. The first is in 1 Corinthians 15, 1 through 8. Let's just hear the words of Paul here. He says, Now I would remind you, brothers, of the gospel I preached to you, which you received, in which you stand, and by which you are being saved. If you hold fast to the word I preached to you, unless you believed in vain, for I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received. And now he's going to share the gospel. But look, he's saying, look, this is the important thing. This is what I preached to you. This is what you received. This is what has saved you. It is saving you. It's in process of saving you. Um, It's of first importance. And I didn't invent it. It's the thing I received. And here it is. He says that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the scriptures, that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the scriptures, and that he appeared to Cephas, that's Peter, then to the 12, and then he appeared to more than 500 brothers at one time, most of whom are still alive, though some may have fallen asleep, then to James, and then to all the apostles. Last of all, as to one untimely born, he appeared also to me. And we see some really important things here that Paul wants to highlight. First, he uses the title Christ for Jesus. That's, that's a transliteration. Uh, that's Christos in the Greek transliteration or a translation from the Hebrew of uh, the Messiah. Um, it's, it's this word that means the, the prophesied anointed king that, that God had been promising his people for generations. That Christ, Jesus is the Christ. He is that one, that king. He died for our sins. Our sins needed to be rectified. Our relationship with God needed to be rectified because of our sins. And Christ died to accomplish that. He also highlights that Christ was buried, that this wasn't some symbolic death. It was an actual bodily death. He was buried in the tomb. Um, But, but that he was raised. He bodily rose again from the dead on the third day, once again, in accordance with the scriptures. Um, that's the second time he's used that phrase. He's using it as like a footnote to know this is all has to, you want to understand this. You really need to understand the story that God has been telling in the scriptures in the Hebrew Bible. 
Um, this is all in accordance. It's the culmination. It's the fulfillment of the story God has been telling for generations. Uh, but Paul kind of footnotes it there. This is all in accordance with the scriptures. And then he says that he appeared. He appeared to hundreds of disciples. This wasn't, this isn't some, uh, some fantasy we've concocted. There were hundreds of eyewitnesses. If we are lying, it would be easily disprovable. Many of them are still alive. Go check on them with you if you don't believe me. He appeared. And then he appeared to me. Those are the things that Paul highlights in this telling of the gospel in 1 Corinthians 15. But also in Luke 4, the gospel of Luke, we see that in uh, verse 42, when it was day, he departed, this is Jesus, and went into a desolate place. The people sought him and came to him and would have kept him from leaving them. But he said to them, words of Jesus, I must preach the good news of the kingdom of God to the other towns as well, for I was sent for this purpose. And he was preaching in the synagogues of Judea. So for Jesus, the idea of the kingdom of God is indispensable. And that's what's implied when Paul uh, uses that word Christos. And even when he refers to the scriptures, it's the kingdom is radically important to our understanding of the good news as well. So there's, like I said, a million different ways you could phrase the gospel, uh, a million different good ways, a million different bad ways, <laughs> false ways as well. But I want to give you kind of a, 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 a short, medi- short to medium length summary of the gospel. Um, as I thought, freshly, I, I didn't just copy and paste something that I've written or spoken before. Um, I thought, I'm going to write something fresh. Here's how I would articulate the gospel, short, medium, uh, medium length here. I would say the good news is that though you have rebelled against your loving creator God in sin, that God himself in the person of Jesus Christ died for your sins. That he took all of your guilt and your deserved punishment upon himself. He was nailed to the cross and he genuinely died. He was buried. (laughs) But... He actually bodily rose from the grave. He proved his victory over death and sin and evil. And and the truth of his claims were proven in his resurrection to many witnesses. And Jesus reigns now. He didn't disappear. He sits at the right hand of God. He reigns as God's long-promised king as we wait for his kingdom to come in full one day when he returns to put everything right and apart from anything (laughs) that you could possibly do he freely graciously offers you full forgiveness genuine righteousness and eternal life in his kingdom he offers you salvation And all of this at the price of simply turning to him in faith. It's not something you have to do. It's news you respond to in faith and trust. That's the good news. We could say more. We could say less. But it's beautiful. It's hopeful. It's truth. Um, Witnessing then is simply sharing this news. (laughs) 
It's pointing to this thing that's happened in history with an invitation to receive it for themselves. Max Stiles says the uh, evangelism is simply teaching the gospel with an aim to persuade. I think that's a good definition. And then one just final quick thing I would say is that uh, we have answering the question, what gives us the confidence to witness? Because many of us probably don't feel that confident about witnessing to the Lord or witnessing to the gospel, to our neighbors. And that's the special empowerment that we have. Notice that in Matthew 28, Jesus said he was going to be with them to the end of the age. In Acts 1, 6, 8, he says he's going, that you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you. And you'll be my witnesses in Jerusalem and all Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. In fact, uh, the, the disciples were told to just go and wait and not do anything until the Spirit came upon them because it was going to be the Spirit in them that made their witness effective. Um, Jesus promises in this Acts 1-8 that, 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 that your effectiveness in witness is not dependent on your own power, but on the power of God himself in you in the power of the Holy Spirit. And remembering this keeps us from believing two lies. One, that we don't have what it takes to share the good news. Many of us have no confidence. We don't think we're gonna be smart enough or sharp enough or winsome enough or interesting enough or educated enough to do it. And uh, while that's true, we have the Spirit within us who intercedes on our behalf, who can, who can speak through us so we have what it takes. Secondarily, uh, it, it helps protect us from believing that we do have what it takes to save anybody. It's like, no, no, no. For those of us who err on the side of like, yeah, I've got what it takes, I've, I'm good enough. This says, no, 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 no. It is only the work of God through you and in the heart of your hearer that brings about salvation and repentance and trust and discipleship uh, in that person. Um, protects us from those two lies. And then finally, a note, answer the question, how should we think of ourselves as witnesses? Uh, I love this passage in 2 Corinthians 5, 20 and 21. Therefore, we are ambassadors for Christ, God making his appeal through us. We implore, implore you on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. For our sake, he made him to be sin who knew no sin so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. That's another little way of gospelizing the story there. God made him who knew no sin, that's Jesus, the only perfect one, to be sin, nailed to the cross, that sin nailed to the cross, so that in him we might become the righteousness. It's this glorious exchange, our sin for his righteousness. But he, he calls us here ambassadors. Like these, an ambassador is this diplomatic official who represents one state to another as its representative. And, and that's who we are. We get to be image bearers, not only image bearers of God, but representatives, ambassadors of his kingdom, kingdom way of life here in the United States. Uh, where most, I'm assuming if you're watching this, you're part of our church. If you're not, awesome. But if you're a follower of Christ, whatever human kingdom you find yourself in, you are fundamentally an ambassador of a different one. And not only an ambassador, we get to be the ones through whom God makes his appeal to be reconciled. It's an amazing privilege that this is. It's a shame when we view it as sort of a rote, sort of drudgery responsibility kind of thing. It's a privilege of being the one who makes God's appeal for him. Um, so there you go.
those are those are few key questions to answer about witness. I know that was quick, uh, but hopefully helpful. And finally, we want to look at what does di- what does witness look like as a discipline. Well, um, first, I just want to note that the the unique character formation power of witness because many of us probably don't think of witness as a spiritual discipline per se. Um, but, and remember what Josh said last week, I thought it was a really helpful framing of this. It's not as though these disciplines uh, are effectual in and of themselves for changing us. Each one of these disciplines is an opportunity to show up to be with God in relationship uh, in hopes that he will meet us there. And by coming to know him and love him and spend time with him more and more, we will be conformed into him by his power and his power alone. But in the discipline of witness and disciplining ourselves to actually do this regularly, it drives us back to abide in him more and more and more. Nothing will drive you to want to better understand who God is, what he's done, and all the other things we say we believe, like having those things challenged in evangelistic settings. Secondarily, God uses this to kill our pride in so many powerful ways. Paul was serious when Paul said, like, the gospel is a stumbling block to the Jews and foolishness to the Greeks. Uh, it is hard to take something that is going to be perceived as stupid to people that you love. (laughs) It really is. It really is. Um, But that's good for us. Cultivates humility. It reminds us to put our trust in him and not in our own, you know, ability to look smart or whatever. And God also uses dramatically to grow our faith like seeing someone put their faith in christ especially after your own season of prayer and witness to them it's it's one of the most joyful faith affirming things that any of us could ever encounter when you see the lord ignite someone's heart for him reveal reveal himself to them and see them respond in faith there is nothing more faith affirming than that so for all these reasons, I think we should, we should very much view witness as a spiritual discipline, as a discipline of grace. Um, and finally, I just want to talk about two aspects. I want to talk about the preparation for witness and the witnessing itself. And maybe surprisingly, uh, when we think about the discipline, I want to think about the preparation side more so. And there's, there's uh, first of all, the internal side of this. And I, I really like what Megan Hill had to say about, I read this really cool book called uh, Joyfully Spreading the News last week in preparation for this. In her, her chapter, Megan Hill said, in our effort to share the gospel, we should take counsel from the flight attendant. We are in an emergency situation. All around us, people are gasping for spiritual breath. But in order to best assist them, we must have our own supply firmly fixed. You know, they always say like, the air masks fall down. Parents, put yours on first. Then you'll actually be capable to help your children. And I do think it's, it's that way with, with witnessing. So how do we prepare? First, we just got to know and love the king. If we want to have any shot at being effective witnesses, we just have to know him and love him. And this, all, you know, you'll, you'll see how all these disciplines tie together and they overlap with each other and hopefully reinforce one another. But these inward disciplines, spending time with him in his word, spending time with him in prayer, uh, cultivating a heart like his in service, all these things help us both know him and, and, and shape our lives into being like the kind of fragrant lives that, 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 that model what he's like and soften the hearts of those around us. 
um, we also have to have to make sure we know the gospel. And I know that this one sermon isn't going to be the end all be all for that. We are going to put together a resource list. I've mentioned this before for each of these uh, spiritual disciplines or practices. Uh, and the, the one for this is really going to emphasize like reminding yourself daily of the gospel, preaching it to yourself so that you have a shot at being able to preach it faithfully to others. It's, it's learning to articulate the gospel simply you know, because the gospel is so beautiful and unintuitive and doesn't work like the way everything else in our lives work, we are easily, easily mutated into religion. Um, the odds are if you were going to try to share the gospel today and you haven't in a while, uh, so there might be really like religious, legalistic things that might slip into it. We have to fight to remember the gospel of grace. Um, in that same book I mentioned, uh, Becky Pippert, said this. She said, someone once told me, I believe in karma. The law of karma is harsh. You sin and you pay, but it's as simple as that. And Becky says, but, but the amazing good news of the gospel is this, you sin and God paid. When the just judgment of holy God had to fall, Christ became our substitute and the wrath of God fell on him. It's a remarkable fact. We are proud sinners, but the final sacrifice for our sin and pride is God, a willing victim. And I don't, I don't know if you've noticed this, but like, we want to make sure the gospel is presented at every single sermon at Door of Hope Northeast. And it might not be the central idea. Um, there are plenty of biblical passages that aren't you know, fundamentally about the gospel. They're about, so, you know, Jesus has all kinds of teachings about other things and things that are very important to life and his kingdom. But nonetheless, um, we believe that in order for these to be Christian sermons and not just self-help or whatever, um, in a meaningful sense, they have to acknowledge the salvation that Jesus has secured um, for us, received in faith. And it, it might not always involve a specific uh, or explicit invitation to respond, but it will at least be mentioned. And another part of our services when we're, when we're in the building and together is communion, which is another way we preach the gospel to ourselves. We do it in remembrance of Jesus. We take his body and his blood into our selves, knowing that they are the only means we have of salvation. This, this part of how we're regularly reminding ourselves of the gospel we have to fight for it or we'll drift from it. And then I would also say just a part of this preparation is, is, is internal preparation is learning to articulate your story's intersection with the gospel simply. Have you ever just journaled? Like, what was it like when you came to faith? How did you, whether you were a kid or an adult, maybe it was a month ago, maybe it was a year ago, maybe it was 40 years ago. But I would challenge you, go and write down what was that like? How did God reveal himself to you? What was that moment of placing your faith in him? Go Seriously, go and journal that if you haven't. Do it multiple times. Do a long one. Do a short one. Do a medium one. Remind yourself of how your story has intersected with the good news that you might be able to communicate that to other people, that it would be ready, that it would be on the tip of your tongue. So that's the internal side of, of preparation to, for witness. The, the external side is simply to, to love people. I would say to form relationships with those who don't know Jesus. 
pursuing your neighbors, pursuing your coworkers, pursuing your barista. And it's as simple and, and, and as like almost offensive to say because it's so simple. Like schedule some meals, have people over for dinner. I know it's hard in the time of COVID. Maybe some of this stuff <laughs> has to be modified for right now. Um, but a time will come where it's more natural, of course. Schedule time, have them over for dinner, have them into your house, begin to form relationship. And not just in a projecty kind of way, but but learn about them. Hopefully, because you're genuinely interested, ask questions about their values and their worldviews, and what gets them up in the morning. What are their deepest hopes for life? What are their deepest regrets in life? These questions that start both softening your heart towards them and perhaps giving, you know, reasonable avenues into sharing the good news. And and as you're forming relationships, the other big thing is to is to start regularly praying for those people that you're in relationship with, that they would find Jesus. There's something about regular prayer for people, evangelistic prayer for people that that keeps um, intentionality in our minds and in our hearts. It softens our hearts towards them, helps us be more perceptive of potential avenues, and it works. Like God wants to answer those prayers. Uh, he very well may soften the heart and provide you supernaturally with opportunity to be his ambassador in ways that you don't even think are possible right now. So begin by praying for those people. And so in summary of this idea of preparation for witnessing, I think it's true that we will never participate in witnessing to the good news if we are not convinced that God and his gospel are true enough, good enough, and beautiful enough to share. Um, We never will if we haven't come to truly, to truly, like, love God. We just won't. Secondly, we never participate in witnessing to the good news um, if we don't deeply, deeply care about our neighbors and their good, both now and into eternity future. Like we have to care enough about people <laughs> to, to risk foolishness. Um, and so, so do you see it? Do, do you see what's going on here? It's actually also maddeningly, maddeningly simple. Just as God commands in the scriptures, just as Jesus reminds us in the prayer we talked about three weeks ago, the key to everything is to genuinely come to love God and love people. And if you grow in those things, you will begin to be naturally supernatural, desiring and wanting and being capable to share the good news, to witness to what has happened, to witness to our saving King and his grace and mercy for sinners. It's so simple. So that's the preparation. Finally, we just have the evangelism. Um, you know, as you're cultivating your relationship with God and your neighbors, you'll begin to, as I said, I love this phrase that I heard from Josh White. I'm not sure where he got it to become naturally supernatural. To number one, just invite people to church and into the Christian community, knowing that as we are all growing in this, you can be confident that the gospel is going to be proclaimed every time you send them a video service, invite them to church, invite them into your small group. Confident they'll be brought into contact with people who are saturated in Jesus and the gospel. Secondarily, you'll begin to share the good news. You'll believe it's good enough. And if it was good enough to save you, that it's good enough to save the people that you love. 
And third, that you'll, you'll make the connection with them in your own personal testimony. You'll be able to communicate like what it was that was compelling enough for you and humbling enough for you and inspiring and beautiful enough for you to reject the religions of your own making, to reject the systems that gave you meaning independent from God and what he's revealed and allowed you to bend the knee to King Jesus to receive and believe and trust in what he had done for you and to give your allegiance to him. So that's it. Um, a lot more could be said. I know this was, this was you know, 40 minutes. That's, that's not chump change in terms of your time. I thank you for listening to this, but certainly much more could be said. We do want to provide resources, but I hope this gets turning. Uh, that if, if, if you have not taken up the discipline of, of, of witnessing or even just preparing yourself intentionally for witnessing both with God and your understanding of the gospel and with your neighbors and cultivating those relationships in prayer. Um, may we do it. May Door of Hope be a community that over time becomes known as a people who are genuine witnesses to the good news because we believe it is good and it's real and it's true and it's beautiful. Um, so that's the task. May we not shrink from it. May we be the kinds of people who love God and his gospel enough and love our neighbors enough to be those ambassadors. May it be a privilege for us. May it be exciting for us. May it, may it change us as well as we meet God there and he meets us there. So that's the hope. I love you all. Thank you so much for listening. I hope, I hope this series is encouraging so far. Um, we've got one more week, uh, one more discipline we're going to discuss for now. And then we're going to jump into the Gospel of Mark. So we're excited to do that as well. Um, blessings. Be well.